Welcome to It Starts Within, a podcast from Platinum Performance, where we'll dive into the health challenges faced by veterinarians and horse owners alike. Join us for inspiring stories about the latest advancements in equine care, treatments, and comebacks. You'll hear interviews with elite competitors, innovative researchers, and the veterinarians that devote their lives to horses and the humans that love them. At Platinum Performance, we know the power of nutrition starts within. Hello, and welcome to all those listening. I'm Jesse Bengoa, and honestly, I'm happy to be here today talking about a subject that's also a tough one, and it's caused a lot of angst in the horse world, especially out west in the last few weeks, and that's EHV1, or equine herpes virus. And we wanted to quickly get a discussion together to provide some more clarity around EHV1 and to give you the absolute latest on the condition and what to know from a preventive and treatment standpoint. And to give you a boots on the ground perspective of what's happening right this very second in terms of the outbreak. Uh, To do that, I'm joined today by three experts in this condition. And these are three veterinarians who are right in the thick of things in varying aspects of the disease. So let me first introduce you to Dr. Steve Reed. Hello there, Dr. Reed, thanks for being here. Thank you, nice to be here. So when I tell you that Dr. Steve Reed is a legend in veterinary medicine, it's not just because I like to brag on him because he's a friend of ours, but he has truly made a remarkable difference in the profession. And Dr. Reed is a boarded internal medicine specialist, and he has and continues to have his hands on some of the very best horses, thoroughbred racehorses in particular, in the world, um, in practice at Rudin Riddle Equine Hospital in Kentucky. Um, He's known for his prowess in numerous areas of equine health, but one in particular is in the field of equine neurology, which is very apropos here on this topic today. Um, Dr. Reed was chosen as the lecturer for the 2008 AAEP Frank J. Milne State of the Art Lecture on the subject of equine neurology, and that's one of the most prestigious awards in the veterinary profession. We're really fortunate to have his perspective here today on the topic of EHV1. Next up, Dr. Lori Bidwell. Hi, Dr. Bidwell. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So Dr. Bidwell has been right in the middle of things during the ongoing EHV1 outbreak in California, um, and she's been treating horses and trying to guide a very rapidly evolving situation on the ground. Uh, Dr. Bidwell co-owns East West Equine Sports Medicine with her husband and fellow veterinary practitioner, the revered Dr. Duncan Peters. Um, They're a dynamic duo, to say the least. And Dr. Bidwell is boarded in anesthesiology. She's a licensed veterinary acupuncturist, and she also brings a long history in academia to the table as well. Um, She's short on folks, but she's taken the time to be here with us today amidst this outbreak. And we're very grateful to you, Dr. Bidwell, for joining us. Next to the table is Dr. Traub Dargatz uh, of Colorado State University. Welcome, Dr. Traub Dargatz. Nice to have you. Thank you. So Dr. Chab Dargatz is boarded in internal medicine and has been involved in an epidemiologic investigation into the 2011 multi-state equine herpes virus myeloencephalopathy or EHM outbreak that happened not long ago. Um, Along with having long experience with biosecurity measures, Dr. Traub Dargatz was also part of a study that had some interesting findings regarding certain nutrients that may help support these horses when exposed to EHM. So that is our dream team. And now that you've gotten to know this team of veterinarians joining me today, let's dive in to this condition. 
And I'm excited to learn right alongside you. There's a lot of new information that's continually emerging here. So Dr. Reed, I'm looking at you. Uh, I wanted to start off by getting to the nitty gritty on the condition itself. So I was throwing around a few acronyms here like EHV1 and EHM. Can you walk us through equine herpes virus, its various forms, and what the difference is between EHV1 and EHM in both etiology and how they present in terms of symptoms? Uh, yeah, EHV1, you know, the equine herpes virus, it's a pretty ubiquitous virus. And uh, one of the most uh, sort of interesting things about it is uh, once horses are exposed to it, it it's uh, often they will develop a latent infection. So a majority of horses that, that see this virus, they will uh, have retained it. And, uh, you know, there's debate about whether it's in lymphocytes or it's in uh, trigeminal ganglion, you know, where it is, but somewhere it's latent infection. And uh, so the, the virus itself can cause a number of things. Uh, the predominant thing that we all usually see is fever and respiratory disease. And uh, so that's, you know, probably one of the most common signs that we'll see with EHV-1. But the other really, really critical parts of it are that it can cause the condition that you referred to as EHM, which it refers to equine uh, herpes virus myeloencephalopathy. And so it's not an itis, it's actually uh, an encephalopathy. And, and associated with this, it's, cause, it's associated with vascular damage. So horses that get the equine herpes uh, or the EHM will have many stroke-like episodes, and that's what causes the neurologic signs. And I'm sure as we go through this, we'll get into this more and more in detail. The other thing that is really important with this virus is it's uh, a not uncommon cause of abortion in mares. Uh, we used to say it was a late uh, trimester abortion, but now we know we've seen it at several stages. It's still probably if anybody would look at the literature, they would refer to it, uh, you know, more often as a late stage abortion. But so those are the key things to remember about it. Number one, it's an important virus. Number two, it's ubiquitous. Number three, it causes latent infection. And four, it can manifest in several uh, uh, ways. And one other one that's probably less common are those uh, weak neonatal folds. So ones that may not abort in the mare, but get out on the ground and are, are you know, affected from having been exposed to this virus. But the EHM, I think, is the focus of today. And I'm candidly anxious to hear uh, what Dr. Bidwell has to say, because having dealt with one small outbreak compared to what they're dealing with now, uh, at Finley College and knowing what Dr. Traub Dargitz went through in 2011, and now Lori is living it, it, it it's really, really problematic. So uh, maybe well, I went on too long. No, that was perfect. And thanks for that baton toss because I want to go to Dr. Bidwell next. And, you know, right now I'm saying we, the royal we, you are obviously dealing with an outbreak um, of EHV1 with cases of EHM um, out west. Um, can you give us an idea, Dr. Bidwell, of what the current outbreak looks like in terms of what you're seeing on the ground, the size, the scope of the outbreak, and where we're at right now in California in terms of management? So it all started on February 11th and it was the initial horse was showing mild neurologic signs and it was just kind of weakness in the hind end. But as soon as we noticed that it had a fever the day before 
And so um, once we saw those clinical signs, we called the state veterinarian, isolated that horse immediately. Um, and then they put that barn that that horse came from, which was um, one of, I think there are 48 barns at the horse show. Um, that barn was in quarantine. Within three days, I had two more horses showing neurologic signs. So they had had a fever in the morning. And then by that, um, I have to think about this. So actually two days later, so they had a fever. And then two days later, they started to show neurologic signs. Um, one of the horses got to the point that I actually had to euthanize it that evening. So it progressed very quickly in that case um, and was not able to up. The other two horses, their clinical signs resolved within just a couple of days. And so we were very fortunate that it was just three horses that showed signs of EHM. Uh, the other cases that we saw at the show um, initially came from that barn um, and they would have a fever and it was really mild in most cases, like 102, three uh, in the morning and then would resolve by that afternoon, usually with a single dose of anamine. And then we'd see no more clinical signs, um, but testing positive. So um, it's gone to the point that any horse that had a fever, we would immediately put in a semi-isolation area until we got the test results and then move those horses to isolation. I think we ended up moving 30-ish horses through that whole process. Um, right now, I think there are four horses still in isolation at the show. So um, what is today? The, the 10th of March. So it's it's been a long process and we were going through a phase where every single day we'd have at least one new fever. Uh, and there were several horses that would not test positive on the initial test, but we'd do a secondary test and they would test positive on the secondary test. So thank goodness we only had three cases that showed EHM, um, but we've had a lot of cases that were positive that just had a fever for one day. And I'm very suspicious that, you know, once we made everyone at the showground start checking temperatures, that's why we were picking this up because it would be so easy to miss. The horses never were depressed looking. Um, that's the thing that's a little scary about this too, is that they, they look great, but they were positive for HV1. So interesting. And, you know, it seems like an obvious, but can we touch on for a moment, Dr. Bidwell, how this spreads? Well, um, so, Nose to nose contact, number one problem. Um, grooms being muzzled. Um, you know, I've learned so much during this whole process that uh, the virus can live on your clothing for seven to 30 days. And, you know, you think about it, I don't wash my jacket every day. I mean, now I do because I change my clothes probably 10 times a day um, through this whole process. I don't want to wear the same thing, but, but there are a lot of grooms at the show that will go hang out with their friends at another barn. And unfortunately, there's a lot of contact. What we would find is a lot of people would walk the horses and the grooms would just let the horses be nose to nose touching. Um, quite a few of these barns, it's a very common West Coast thing is to have a, a community water bucket that they could go to a big bin and eat some carrots out of a water bucket after they show, but that's the same water that everyone else from the barn is sharing. Um, so nose to nose is definitely the biggest problem. Um, uh, the other problem that we found, and actually in the three horses that were positive for EHM um, had all received dexamethasone as a calming agent. And that's a very common thing, unfortunately, in show hunters is that trainers believe that dexamethasone um, is a good calming drug. And so they'll give 10 milligrams the evening before they show. And um, that's insane because it, it knocks out their immune system and we're just 
basically setting these horses up for problems. So, so I will say I saw a lot of horses from a barn that I know the horses were getting dexamethasone uh, the night prior to showing, and that was for several weeks in a row. Uh, so that was a little scary. Um, and, you know, none of these horses had a cough or sneeze, which is good, um, but certainly the, the nasal contact, um, just contact with mucus was a big problem. So interesting. And I'm sure you are, you know, learning things uh, on a daily basis there as this evolves. Um, and that leads, that leads me to Dr. Traub Dargatz for my next question. And that's biosecurity. So it's a significant focus, obviously, when EHV-1 is at play. So can you give us an idea of what resources are available related to biosecurity and what some of those key control strategies are that are being deployed? Sure. I think through my career, I've seen an evolution in biosecurity within the equine industry to where there's more resources available more recognition of a need to apply some principles uh, that we know about. And I, I think a key message is uh, we're not gonna be able in this um, podcast to get into all the details people need to think about, but there are some really good resources. So for example, the Equine Disease Communication Center has uh, multiple links to biosecurity resources. And they also have a recommendation for owners on what to do when they initially suspect a contagious disease. There's also a biosecurity toolkit for equine events that was developed by the California Department of Food and Agriculture. After that 2011 outbreak, there was a recognition of a need for detailed guidance. And it's in two parts. Part one is trying to prevent a disease occurrence. And part two is if disease occurs, what, what do we need to think about doing? So we're into biocontainment um, efforts. And then the American Association of Equine Practitioners just um, published an updated version of their general biosecurity guidelines, which is a resource for veterinarians who are trying to serve their clients in developing biosecurity plans for their horses. And then the US Animal Health Association has a guideline for EHV incidents that's directed towards state animal health officials in trying to help them come up with a response plan. And Dr. Bidwell mentioned that the state animal health uh, official is involved in the mitigation of the incident that, she, that she's involved with. So I, I think another major concept maybe I'd like to get across is having everyday biosecurity and then enhancing that biosecurity based on recognition of disease. So everyday biosecurity for events where horses come together, we recognize when horses come together from different sources they're at more risk of exposure to a contagious disease agent than they might be if they were isolated at their home farm, let's say. So having some protocols in place to avoid spread of disease and a risk that a horse might pose on an everyday basis is important. And one thing going back to Dr. Reed's comments is with this latency, horses can reactivate to where they shed this virus from their nasal secretions and not show any signs of disease, we, we wouldn't know they were sick, even if we were monitoring them very carefully. So having things in place to try to reduce the risk those 
those horses might pose. So having um, hand hygiene uh, between groups of horses, ideally even between each horse. And what we've learned over the years is you've got to make that easy to do. So we either have to have hand washing stations or have hand gel available, readily available for people to be able to use. We need to avoid, as Dr. Bidwell said, direct horse to horse contact as much as we can. Um, and then avoiding congregation of horses in locations such as entry gates, uh, wash rack areas, and where those horses may congregate doing frequent cleaning, even on an everyday basis or more frequently as needed. Uh, no sharing of water sources, and Dr. Bidwell mentioned that in her uh, update, uh, or feed sources, and then uh, limiting people with no role in the care of a group of horses or individual horses from coming by and um, potentially introducing a disease agent. And then no sharing of tack, grooming equipment, white rags, um, buckets between horses, and then labeling those materials so it's easy for anybody that would pick them up to know this belongs to a, a certain horse. Sort of like labeling kids stuff when they go to camp, having it be easy to recognize. It's either um, color coded for a group of horses under a certain management or even ideally for, for each horse. Uh, then we need to monitor for disease and when it occurs, have a plan for taking action to mitigate the risk uh, a potential contagious disease case would pose. And that really then gets us into um, diagnostics and enhanced biosecurity related to containing the disease to the most limited number of animals possible. And uh, that really needs to be tailored to each event what would prompt a response and, and what would that response be? But a key idea is what Dr. Bidwell mentioned is getting the horses we've now recognized pose a risk separated and putting in place and having the materials we need to move them to a separate area and um, allow caretakers to go in and care for those animals and yet um, not move disease agents from those isolated animals to yet unexposed animals. And then lastly, what she mentioned is monitoring potentially exposed animals for disease, depending what the signs are, like for fever, uh, twice a day, and then taking action based on detection um, of those clinical signs. And a key message is it needs to be tailored to a specific event or venue. And then also that Pre-planning is critical to be able to do this in a timely way. Um, if, if we don't have an idea where those horses are going to go um, and have the materials to be able to implement that segregation, uh, we're going to miss out on an opportunity to contain the problem. We maybe can't um, eliminate all risks for that first case, but how we react to it can minimize the scope of a disease situation. I like that. Proactive versus reactive. Good words to live by in veterinary medicine in general, I guess. But good Lord, Dr. Traub-Dargatz, I mean, that's, that is amazing information. So thank you for that. And um, I'm going to toss it back to Dr. Reed now. Um, so Dr. Reed, you've got a confirmed case of EHV-1 in front of you. 
what's your strategy? How are you tackling the condition with this horse? What are your goals? What are you trying to avoid? Can you paint that picture for us a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I think that that you know a lot of it just goes to what uh, what Dr. Bidwell and Dr. Travdargets have already said, and that is uh, number one. I would like to second what Josie just mentioned that having a biosecurity plan in place ahead of time, which is going to make it tailored to every event. And I think that after that Ogden, Utah episode, that's when everybody really started having these pre-planned, uh, you know, things so that when you get the, the show uh, organized, all of the people involved already know some of the things such as what, uh, what Josie mentioned. They know that if they get a horse that has a fever and suspicious uh, transmissible disease, they're going to have a location where those segregated horses are going to get to go to. So what do you do once you got the, the active case? Well, number one, that's the first thing you're going to do. Get them out of the environment. And then I think it's going to be really, really critical. Uh, I'm going to not address that case for just one second to take a, a very close uh, attention to those horses that were most immediate contact. And I think Lori already mentioned that that's what they did. One, they saw horses that were febrile and that were positive. Then, you know, you focus your, your uh, initial evaluation in that immediate area. Now, uh, once that horse has separated away, then I think you've got to start uh, thinking really long and hard about what you're going to do. Because, uh, as we already heard, in one of the cases that, uh, that Dr. Bidwell described, in I know episodes that Dr. Traub saw at Utah, and ones that I saw back at Finley College back in 2003, some of those horses were febrile in the morning, recumbent by mid-afternoon, and on their way to death by midnight. So sometimes it can be really rapid, which means maybe nothing we do is going to save them. But it certainly tells us we had better do something rapidly. What are those things? Well, the things that we need to do, number one, if they're febrile, we need to do something to combat that. And a non-steroidal such as banamine or bute, and we already heard Dr. Bidwell mentioned that banamine was uh, helpful in, in some of their cases, and I'm sure she'll address that more in a minute. Uh, number two, because of the fact that it is a vascular damage, there's some evidence out there that maybe some anticoagulants might be helpful, in particular heparin. There's some evidence that it may be a, a useful thing, and that's often a drug that I go to. So this is, in my experience, it's a helpful drug for me. It may not work for everyone. Certainly, um, we know now that valcyclovir, gancyclovir, some of these antiviral agents are going to be very helpful, and I think it's critical for the veterinarians to know that you need to be uh, uh, aware of what is absorbed or not absorbed. So we know acyclovir, not well absorbed, but we can give valcyclovir, it'll be converted to acyclovir, it'll have the beneficial effect. Getting those kind of drugs on board as soon as possible. The other thing that's critical, uh, and I think there's some work by Lutzgering and uh, maybe Gisela uh, at Michigan State, showing that stacking too many drugs on top of each other are not always helpful. So you need to be tuned in to have a, a definitive plan. Uh, and so those are the things, you know, one last thing that that is important to me in looking at the horses around the area is getting an idea of whether other horses in the area have been vaccinated. 
more, I'm sure you're going to ask me a question or all one of us about vaccination before we're done here. But suffice it to say that even though there is currently no USDA approved vaccine that we know is preventative uh, for the neurologic form of it, it is helpful to know that we've done all you can to keep the immune status of the uh, animals in the environment, particularly ones that are going to be traveling, showing or racing. Uh, that, that you've done everything you can to have their protective immunity at a higher level as you can. Uh, I don't know if I addressed everything you wanted in that question, but I'll stop there and I, uh, my colleagues may have some things they, that I've forgotten that they would add. Oh, I think you addressed uh, addressed a, a amazing laundry list of what needs to be considered and done. So absolutely. Um, you know, and I was actually going to uh, to turn it over to Dr. Traub Dargatz next. Does anyone have anything to add to that before I turn it over? You, oh, I'm sorry. Do you want me to tell you what we did treatment-wise for the horses here, or yes. do you want me to? Yes, okay. I absolutely do. Um, so I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, so we uh, actually consulted with quite a few experts. And um, so banamine twice a day and heparin sub-Q twice a day, we did for three days. Um, Initially, you know, it was a weekend and we couldn't get heparin. So some small animal clinics in the area actually donated heparin to us, which was amazing. So we were really lucky that people stepped up. Um, we did DMSO, IV, um, in some cases twice a day, because we had some horses that did have fevers of 104.5, um, one that went up to 105. Um, so we'd do that for about three days, but we'd start them on Valcyclovir. Um, we do 21 tabs of one gram tabs three times a day. And we started that at two for two weeks. So it was kind of our plan. The um, pharmacies in the Coachella Valley area freaked out because we were taking all of their Valcyclovir <laughs> and using it for our, our patients. Um, and it was a little tricky to get from our drug distributor. So, so that was a little bit of a challenge, but, but that was our treatment method that we did. And, and we tried to be pretty aggressive as soon as we had a horse with a fever. Excellent. That's outstanding. Dr. Traub Dargas, did you have something to add to that too? Well, I was just going to add, and, and Dr. Reed, um, I'm sure can embellish this, but I, I do think that the neurologic horses are challenging to care for and maintain biosecurity around them because they may be recumbent, uh, they may be thrashing um, while recumbent. If we're going to try to put them in a sling to get them up. It requires a fair amount of intensive care. And so optimally they're under um, isolation conditions that are somewhat challenging to implement at a showgrounds or otherwhere, other places. And they may require enough care that they can't be cared for there. So I, I think a key point is um, we do need to care for those horses, but I think they present not only a treatment challenge, but a a challenge in containing uh, the disease agent while we're doing that. There are a lot of people needed to help care for them when they get that critical. You bet, you bet. That's Absolutely. a really good point because sometimes you, you can have everybody dressed in all the biosecurity garb you want, but they're tough cases to manage. Now, once they're recumbent, if they can't rise and they aren't struggling, not so bad, but as, as Dr. Traub's alluding to, the ones that are struggling, boy, there's also the risk to the horse and a risk to everybody in the environment. 
It's a very good point. It's the reality of the situation. Absolutely. So thanks for bringing that up, Dr. Traub Dargatz. And um, take another breath because I'm coming right back to you. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I want to know specifically about the work that you and your colleagues did when examining the multi-state outbreak in, in 2011. So there were some links that were identified in horses that developed EHM or, or the neurologic form of EHV1. Um, and that work was published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine. Um, can you walk us through your findings and, and give us a little bit of insight into what your team discovered there? Sure. So that outbreak in 2011 in multiple states uh, revolved around horses that had attended the Western uh, Cutting Horse Association event in Ogden, Utah. The horses actually had left that event by the time the first uh, case was confirmed uh, in Colorado, actually. And so the horses had dispersed to multiple locations. So follow up on those was a challenging aspect. And 19 states actually had potentially exposed horses by that point, and um, also Canadian provinces. So there was initial situation reports that just updated people where those horses were and the case statuses, but we recognized there may be an opportunity to try to learn more from this challenging situation. So we designed a survey that we hope to administer um, to both um, related to both animals that were cases and controls so that we could look for any factors associated with horses becoming either an EHM case or an EHV1 case without neurologic disease. And we, they, the survey was quite extensive. And we did do a statistical comparison to determine uh, factors that were associated with uh, being an EHV1 case versus being an EHM case. And those were gender, uh, female horses were overrepresented uh, it was also the number of biosecurity risks that they encountered while they were um, at the event and also the number of classes they were in uh, during the event. And then when we compared EHM cases to controls, there were beyond the biosecurity risks, um, the number of events that they attended in the few weeks before the Ogden event. And one of the um, factors that we found that actually reduced the risk for EHM, uh, a colleague that was part of the team that worked on this, uh, Dr. Tom Kazary, uh, actually had a strong interest in micronutrients and their effect on um, disease resistance. And so he wanted a question about feed supplements on the survey. And we actually found that horses that were on a feed supplement that contained zinc were at a lower risk than horses that weren't on that supplement. Um, not a specific supplement, but one with zinc. Uh, just being on a feed supplement was not associated with a reduced risk if it had uh, zinc. The other factor that we found um, was that horses that received a vaccination against herpes in the five weeks prior to the Ogden event, were actually more likely to be HM cases than controls. And um, we're not able to say that that was causative. It was an association that we think needs further exploration. 
as Dr. Reed mentioned, none of the vaccines are marketed for prevention of this particular aspect of EHV. And I've certainly um, been involved in assisting veterinarians with outbreaks in populations of horses that were not vaccinated at all. Um, for example, an outbreak of EHM in horses that were used for tours coming from multiple outfitters together um, to be pastured over winter. Um, we saw an EHM outbreak and those horses were not um, highly vaccinated by any means. So those were the factors that we found associated um, with the EHM. And, you know, we still had a fairly limited number of EHM cases, despite how big an outbreak this was. And I'll just say, in trying to look for risk factors, you need to have enough horses in each category to look for that. And um, in some of these outbreaks with one or two horses with EHM, uh, there aren't enough animals to really look at that kind of risk factors. But hopefully this study prompted others to look at this in more depth, um, either through further evaluation of outbreaks or through other mechanisms. So interesting. And, um, you know, at, at Platinum, obviously the micronutrient world is one that we live in heavily here, but um, zinc and lysine is something that um, we've been providing to support um, you know, uh, immune health, we'll call it in these horses, especially uh, down at Desert Horse Park and so on, seeing, seeing the outbreak right now. And one thing that I feel like is a constant theme that I've heard in a lot of your comments, Dr. Traub Dargatz, and, and also Dr. Bidwell and Dr. Reed is, is stress. You know, it, it stresses the, the killer of the immune system, as we know, on both the human and equine side. So Dr. Bidwell, I wanna to turn to you on this um, and talk prevention, you know, um, general health, you know, and general maintenance of general health seems to be an obvious one, but um, maintaining the immune system. And obviously we know that you do that in a lot of ways, managing stress, especially for these high level performance athletes, you know, that you've been seeing um, in a show setting during this outbreak um, and doing that through, through management of general health, management of the immune system, management of the equine gut. Um, can you kind of walk us through what you would recommend in terms of a, a preventive strategy for horses uh, in general that are showing, competing, and potentially exposed? Um, I do want to quote my husband really quickly. At one of the meetings that we had for all the people at the show, he said, you know, we have to realize that we, we are the ones that put these horses in this situation. No horse would just show up at a horse show on its own and they wouldn't ask to travel these distances. And I think that is an important thing. You know, horse show circuits keep getting longer and longer. And every time a horse moves to another show, they get different feed because they're now getting hay that the show provides and, and their grain might change because I, I'm surprised by how different um, grain from same companies can look on the West Coast versus the East Coast. Um, you know, the hours, like at horse shows, there are braiders that, keep the lights on. I mean, some, a lot of the barns have lights on all night long and there's a lot of activity in the barns at night. Um, some of the grooms will blast music at night. And so it's really important that people keep all that in mind and try to make a quieter, happier, healthier environment for the horse. Diet absolutely is imperative that I think it should be consistent. And, you know, having a supplement, you know, we have been recommending using the platinum um, supplement that has a zinc and lysine in it. And I think it's a great combination and having something consistent like that, having hay that's consistent, you know, making the environment consistent, but also being better managers of horses. 
you know, horsemanship gets forgotten quite a bit and people just, you know, if you're to show, you want to show every week. And that's been one of the toughest things that we've had to deal with is that, you know, people want to leave the desert horse park and go to another show as fast as they can. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, I, I rode and we would show, but we would show in the summer and then in the fall, we'd take the shoes off of the horses and they would just be turned out basically for the rest of the winter. And, and they were never lame and they were always healthy. Maybe I didn't know any better. They were really lame, but, but honestly, they were so healthy and they lived to be old, happy, healthy horses. And, and I think we need to be responsible and make better horse decisions, like not show every week, give the horses a break stay consistent and make it a quiet happier environment for horses so that's what we're trying to do amen i think that i think that's such an obvious and we think about it with people so much and i think it goes back to all all the things you just mentioned including restorative sleep right on the human side yeah. we know how important that is and i will never forget the oohs and ahs in the room at platinum summit in 2019 when dr christine fuchs out of germany got up and she talked about her work in sleep in horses. And I mean, everybody's jaw was on the floor because it turns out horses, in fact, don't sleep the way that we once thought they did. And in a show environment, their sleep is so disrupted. And we know that has a direct tie to the immune system. So I think that those points that you brought up are, are really interesting and obviously something we should we should consider. Um, Dr. Reed, I'm gonna I'm gonna point this one back at you. And it has to do with you know our, our evolving understanding of EHV1. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to where, where we're headed with our understanding of this condition. You know, what, where would you point the research? What do we, what do we want to know? What's happening out there? And, you know, also I would, I would assume that that includes development of a vaccine. You know, I know the Grayson Foundation has RFPs out right now. Um, so if you could give us an idea of where we're headed uh, for EHB1 and also specifically EHM. Well, I think that, that that's a really good and important question. You know, looking down the road, one of the things that as far as where would I point the research? Well, number one, I think the more we know about any virus, protozoan, bacteria, whatever, the more we know about the biology and how that uh, organism survives, how it multiplies, everything that we know about the biology of a particular or uh, virus, will help us decide what could be better uh, preventative strategies, what could be better treatment strategies. All of those things are really, really critical. So focus, some of the research ought to be on understanding the virus, learning about mutations that occur in the virus and how, uh, what impact those mutations might have on what the virus does. Uh, because number one, the virus would like to evade the immune system, right? It wants to survive. So it's going to do whatever it can to survive when it gets in, you know, into the horse. And so that, that's one area. Then you specifically new treatments. I think that's another area that needs to be uh, enhanced and, and uh, developed. And so having an understanding of how the virus goes from being on respiratory epithelial cells to entering into the uh, bloodstream and getting on you know, uh, mononuclear cells. We know it's a cell-associated viremia. And then how does it go from there to enter into the central nervous system? So learning about the pathogenesis, that's another really critical thing. And folks like uh, um, uh, Gisela Hussey at uh, Michigan State, Let's Gearing, Klaus Osterreiter uh, in Germany, Lutz here at the at the uh, Gluck Center. Uh, 
they're all working on things like that and understanding about the, you know, how the virus survives and how it goes from cell to cell or enters into other parts uh, of the body system. And then the last thing that you ask about the vaccine, and you're right, uh, I, I, one of the greatest things that I get to do is chair the scientific review committee for Grayson. And uh, we have for the first time uh, uh, a directed research, a donor directed research. That's not been something that Grayson has, has done in the past, but we had an individual who had a company who was making mRNA vaccines. We all have heard about mRNA vaccines in light of COVID. So, uh, but there are many types there, you know, uh, self-directed RNAs, and, and uh, there are all sorts of RNA vaccines that are out there. Well, we had an individual come to Grayson with $2 million and said, I would like to put a call out to develop vaccinations with the thought that his feeling from what he understood on work that he was doing in other areas, um, you know, in particular on animals and people, that uh, an RNA vaccine might be ideal. Certainly, uh, one of the things that I'm going to say, something that'll be a little controversial, uh, maybe Lori or Josie will challenge it. But for me, one of the things that I often do, those courses in the environment that we know have not been vaccinated, even in the face of an outbreak, I'm, I'm okay with a modified live vaccine. There's a little controversy there, and the evidence so far is weak. There is some evidence that it might work, but it's weak. It needs larger numbers to prove that. But having a vaccine that we know is effective in the face of an outbreak would be really helpful. Now, again, what horses are going to give it to? We heard Josie mention a minute ago that, you know, uh, horses have been vaccinated within five weeks of the exposure had a higher risk of developing the, the EHM manifestation. So we, we need to know that the vaccine is not only going to be um, safe and protective, it, it needs to do that. You know, there aren't very many, uh, you know, uh, double blind studies that are done on efficacy of vaccines, but we do know that the vaccines, and this was work Townsend presented a number of years ago at AAP, that the vaccines that had the highest antigen loads seem to be the ones that worked the best. Uh, and, and there were three studies, I believe, that he described. And whilst I, I certainly uh, recall parts of them, I don't know enough to address that to give you any intimate details. But that's something that was presented at AAP about 10 years ago and, and could be something people could go back to. So a new vaccine is the final and third target for where research ought to go. Um, and then no doubt, even though the biosecurity aspect has been improved, as Josie mentioned, over and over over the last several years. There's probably still more we can do in that area. I don't know, Josie, you might want to add to it. But those would be the four areas of research that I would say we need to focus on. You bet. Excellent information. Dr. Traub Dargatz, he pointed it right at you, so let's turn it over. <laughs> So I guess just a few things. Um, clarification, the horses that were the EHM cases in our uh, retrospective study uh, had received a multivalent uh, inactivated vaccine. So they weren't the modified live okay. or the high antigen uh, load vaccines. 
Um, related to vaccination in the face of the outbreak, I think uh, if horses have had prior vaccination, potentially boostering horses that are afebrile, um, healthy otherwise, but at risk of exposure. Um, it's controversial, but I think if we're thinking of doing that, using a vaccine that is more likely to create not only an antibody, but potentially a cell-mediated response uh, would be advantageous. And both the US Animal Health Association guidance document I mentioned and the AEP vaccine um, guidelines for EHV uh, mention which, those, which of those vaccines uh, those are. Um, I guess related to the biosecurity, I'll acknowledge that it takes time and effort and anything we do in that arena adds a layer of inconvenience. And it also adds a layer of reducing the social aspect, if you will, of these events. Uh, Dr. Bidwell mentioned the grooms like to hang out together or um, somebody has a coffee pot in one of the aisleways. And so that's where everybody goes to gather. Uh, thinking about at least taking some precautions if people are gonna do that, having people that move between groups of horses, um, like practitioners and farriers, um, where the grooms may not move between, but they do, they, they should take some precautions uh, even on an everyday basis. I guess one last thing to address uh, some things Dr. Bidwell mentioned, and I appreciate her comments about horsemanship. The other aspect I've thought a lot about is transport. And are there ways we can transport horses, recognizing their preferences, if you will? So for example, horse A hates horse B. So maybe they don't have to be next door to each other in the trailer. Just think how we load them and how we move them. The driver, um, are they careful in stopping and starting and turning? Um, and then, you know, just thinking about, if you want to call it little things, but there are practical things. How would you feel sitting next to someone on the plane that irritates you the whole four hours you're on the plane versus having a pleasant conversation with somebody? So just thinking about those aspects. Um, that we could optimize the horse's welfare. And then just one last comment, there's something about these situations where horses come together that, you know, we see these big outbreaks. We, we certainly see horses come together for events. I'm sure Dr. Bidwell could mention a lot of them where they didn't recognize any EHV outbreak. And yet where the stars align, if you will, uh, once it gets going, um, it can be really a lot of horses ending up infected and uh, at risk. So I'm still wondering what all goes into that. I, I still don't know the answer to all of it, despite all we've looked at. Very insightful as usual, Dr. Traub-Dargatz. Dr. Bidwell, I'll turn it to you for any closing, closing thoughts. Well, I really appreciate those comments because, yeah, I've traveled as something that you know, we take these horses all over the country and, and, you know, I think we need to make better choices for them and, and definitely look at, you know, who are they traveling next to and who's driving. Um, 
the other issue is like in California, a lot of people will hire grooms just on site. There are people that they don't know and they don't know their horses. And, um, and I think that is a big challenge for the horses because they aren't necessarily kind to the horses. And so I, I really wish trainers would pay attention and take a little more responsibility for their horses. That was brought up that, um, you know, people will towel horses' mouths off right before they go into the ring because they've been warming up and, and they're drooling. And so they'll wipe their face. They use that same towel on every other horse. And I've borrowed other people's towels and I've wiped my horse's face with it. And I think about it and I'm like appalled by myself that I did that. And, and that's such a common thing that, you know, there's simple things that we really need to do to, to be better. So that's all I had to add. You know, Laura, you mentioned about the braiders. I never thought about it, but you know, a lot of those people, I remember when I was at Ohio State, one of the secretaries, she made a ton of money at horse shows there in Columbus, Braden, Mains, and and uh, she would work all night and go from place to place, you know, bar. And she might have been, you know, one of the people that could be carrying things back and forth, you know, not just the grooms. Uh, now, a lot of people, you know, maybe they bring their own braider, but I don't think so. I think there are people who are just there. Things that a lot of people yeah. don't consider, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, the horse community, you know, especially out West right now is justifiably worried. And especially given what's been happening yes. in the last few weeks with the outbreak of of EHV1 and it's serious business. And there are a lot of really dedicated researchers and veterinarians like those of you joining me today here who are on the front lines and they're treating horses and they're helping to ensure that, you know, we do everything that we can to decrease the instances of these outbreaks. So I want to thank Drs. Reed Bidwell and Traub Dargatz uh, for being with me today and for giving our writers listening such a solid foundation for EHV1, for EHM, and how best to handle your horses moving forward to keep everyone healthy and everyone competing like we want to. This is a big part of all of our lives. So thank you very much um, to the three of you for joining us and to everyone listening. And until next time, I'm Jesse Bengoa, and I appreciate you spending your time with us with Platinum Performance. So take care, everyone. <laughs>